following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text is the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word. How's everybody else doing this morning? Amen. Amen. It is good. Thank you, Corey. How's Corey's doing? Fantastic. How's everybody else doing? Amen. All right, awesome. It's good to see everybody. Glad to be navigating through these through this text with you. Um, this text is going to shape us in a lot of different ways. It's going to um, it's going to correct a lot of things that we have uh, probably um, assumed about Scripture that 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 needs probably some shaping, some restructuring, some reordering, and that's fine. We're going to navigate that. That's not a big big issue, so don't get overly concerned. But but I want to first uh, before we even get too far into this text, I just want to again just highlight the fact that this is memorial. Memorial Day weekend, and Memorial Day weekend typically forces us to cope with death as we honor the men and the women who have sacrificed their lives on the line of du- or in the line of duty for the sake of freedom. Um, it, it, was in, it was at World War II, World War II uh, April 1st, as a matter of fact, Easter Sunday, 1945, where the Battle of Okinawa con- commenced. And the Battle of Okinawa was, of course, a significant battle in World War, uh, World War II. Uh, the Navy was there, the Marine Corps was there, and of course, uh, ja- the Japanese uh, uh, soldiers were there as well as uh, a number of uh, Okinawans were there. Um, it was a bloody battle. It was a bloody battle. Uh, it, it's, it's been said that roughly 150,000 casualties were collected just amongst the folks that were actually fighting. 52,000 casualties of the Allied, which of course was America and its allies, but but then another roughly 100,000 or so Japanese soldiers were killed in the line of duty. 
And then there was another 150,000 Okinawans that were killed. So, so over 300,000 people over the course of 82 days met their demise in this battle. There was a lot of loss suffered in the course of, of, of this two-and-a-half-month battle. But amongst, amongst all of that loss, there was a story about preservation. There was a story, that, uh, there was a story about, about, about life amongst all of that death. Matter of fact, that story became so renowned and so prominent that there was a movie made about it in 2016, and the name of that movie was Hacksaw Ridge. It, it was capturing the, uh, the, the actual particular uh, uh, place of battle in which a young, uh, young medical doctor or a young uh, medical practitioner by the name of Desmond Doss did the unthinkable on that day. Desmond Doss was not popular amongst his his fellow brethren in the military. Desmond Doss, as a matter of fact, was um, actually, they worked, many worked to have Desmond Doss dismissed from the forces. They didn't want him fighting alongside them. And the reason was quite simple. Desmond wasn't fighting, right? Desmond was amongst, amongst uh, like, like the rest of the brothers who were preparing for battle, Desmond was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he had a strict rule and guide, uh, guideline as it relates to combat. He vowed to never take up a gun, but he served in the military along these, alongside these men who were called into this bloody battle, and so many of them did not want him to be a part. As a matter of fact, they worked so hard to try to get him out of it, but, but law required that there be non-combatant positions available for folks with those type of convictions. And so Desmond was one of those people, and he went along in battle with these men. And as the war raged, and as bullets were flying, and as bombs were exploding, and people were dying, men were retreating, all except for Desmond. Corporal Doss, Corporal Desmond Doss, instead of retreating, Corporal Desmond Doss saw it as his, his mission to save as many lives as he could possibly save. So Desmond would go back into the heat of the battle. He would go back into, in, in the direction from whence the bullets were flying. He would go back into the direction from whence the bombs were, were, being, were, were being tossed, and, and he would grab one after another of the men who were or, or hurt or wounded in battle. He grabbed as many men as he possibly could, and even as he was grabbing them, he would say, Lord, give me one more. He cried out to God as he was on this battlefield, asking that God would give him the strength to save another and another and another, and another. I'm just going to tell you something, guys. If, 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 there is some, if there is something to be said about, um, about motivation, there's not many motivations that would drive a man to do such a thing. This man believed not only in what he was doing, but this man also believed that regardless of what happened to his life, it was going to be secure because there was something on the other side of it. He was willing to put his life on the line for it. And that's kind of what we want to talk about for a few minutes is what is on the other side of this life? Jesus is, 
going to promise us in the course of these next couple of weeks, Jesus is going to make two foundational promises. One promise is the promise of what's on the other side of this life. As he is preparing to leave, he's going to encourage them first by promising them or promising them what exactly is he leaving to do. What is he leaving to do? There's a promise in what he's leaving to accomplish. But there's also a promise in what he's leaving behind while he goes to accomplish the other promise. And so this week we're going to talk about the first promise. What is he leaving to accomplish? And next week we're going to talk about the, other, the second promise. What is he leaving behind while he goes and accomplishes the first promise? He begins this chapter by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The first question we must ask is, why are our hearts troubled? Why are the disciples' hearts troubled in this text? It's because Jesus is leaving and they cannot come. It's very simple. He's leaving and they can't come. The last time we were in John, in fact, we ended up describing a very, very important miss by the disciples in chapter 13. So flip there real quickly to chapter 13. Let's look at this text together, verse 31. It says this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify it, him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I will, I'm sorry, little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I had said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, where I cannot not follow you now, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, we talked about Peter a couple of weeks ago missing the most important words at the moment in this text, which was, love one, love one another just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love, so you also are to love one another. Peter completely missed that point, possibly because he felt that he was pretty solid on the love thing. As a matter of fact, we hear Peter saying, hey, I'll die for you right now, and we know that that's not the case. We know that Peter kind of wavers in that in just a few short, uh, short days from now. But, but, but he thinks he has that, so he moves on to something else that he heard Jesus say, which was, I'm leaving. And Peter says, wait a second. Where are you going, and why can't I come? He doesn't want Jesus to leave, and rightly so. He's been with him and seen him and seen all the things that you need to see in order to know that you don't want to be anywhere without him, right? Peter has seen suffering cease in the presence of Jesus. He's seen sickness end in the presence of Jesus. He's seen the hungry, fed, limitless food in the presence of Jesus. He's seen storms stopped in the presence of Jesus. He's heard the greatest messages ever preached. He's read or he's listened to the greatest stories that have ever been told. And he's, he's been taught the greatest lessons that man has ever been taught. So he now knows peace and joy and hope and love that he had probably never known before Jesus had arrived. And now Jesus is leaving. I can without a doubt 
say that I understand, and not only do I understand, but I empathize with Peter. I empathize and I, I, I sympathize with the grief that he is experiencing in this moment. And I'm sure most of us can. In addition to all of that, seeing that, knowing that, realizing that, also consider the fact that Peter had just been told that he is about to fail miserably. So in other words, the last thing the disciples need to hear right now is that Jesus is about to leave. But if he is, then the answer becomes, why can't I go too? I feel like Peter sometimes. If I'm being honest with you, right now at this point in 2018, I sometimes feel like Peter. We've seen more children die in their schools from gunfire than we have seen soldiers die in the field of combat this year. True story. The first of many storms are uh, lining up on the coast for this season, and we're sure to see, I'm sure, a few more before it's all said and done and a few broken homes with it. Our country is more openly divided across partisan lines than they have been in decades. Minorities are seeing more openly racist discourse towards them than we've seen in the last 30 years. Just to give you two examples, my wife at Home Depot, as she was driving into Home Depot, and um, ran, almost had a fender bender because a gentleman swerved over into her lane. And the gentleman, I'm not sure what was going on with his day, but he decided to lash out at my wife, yelled out of his window and called my wife the N-word. That's 2018, just a month ago, on a normal Saturday at a Home Depot. In my own neighborhood app, as we were talking about how we were going to solve the problem with so many uh, so many folks firing guns around, around the surrounding area in Vicksburg and just firing off guns as a, as a show of machismo. Um, we, we were talking about how we were going to address this, and one gentleman came onto the app and said, well, you know 98% of our uh, police force is black, so good luck, trying to get out of, get, good luck trying to get anything good out of them. That was just last week. And so when I tell you that 2018 has sometimes brought the sentiment that Peter has right here, where he says, why can't I go with you? When I tell you that I feel that sometimes, I'm not telling you a lie. I can understand why Peter skipped over the call to love the people that you're being left with. Because that means you're being left. So their hearts are indeed troubled for all the same reasons that your own heart would have been and possibly is like me right now. To this disappointment, Jesus gives us two, two commandments. The first one is to believe in God, the Father. The second one is to believe in me. What you see is, what you see is, is, is not the full picture, Peter. What you see is not the full story. Yes, I am leaving, but that is not all that is in this equation. Believe in the Father. Believe in me. Trust in the pro Trust the process. Maybe some basketball fans have heard this. Trust the process. There are two points that, that in that trust the process are worth mentioning. The first thing is that Jesus, Jesus has called for us to believe. Faith is not just what you do, how we live, and in what ways we respond when everything is going well in our lives. 
In fact, faith is even more prominently on display when the exact opposite is happening. Faith is what we do when everything is going wrong and nothing is going right in our lives. The disciples came to have faith in Christ, in the presence of Christ, and all of his works and all of his miracles. Now Jesus is asking them to trust him in his absence. Trust him that while he may be leaving them, he is not deserting them. Trust him that his actions of departure are not less loving towards them, but his actions of departure are actually more loving to them. These words are important for us as well. Sometimes we are not given the privilege of knowing how it is all going to work out, but we are always given the privilege to know the God who is working it all out, right? There are times when it is helpful for us to hear the words, believe in me. When trials arise, when finances appear insufficient, when temptation seems to be relentless in, relentless in pursuit of us, believe in me. When it feels like God is literally not there, believe in me. Trust in God the Father, trust in God the Son which is the second point, our call to faith in God the Father is a call to faith in Christ. Notice he says, believe in God the Father, believe also in me. Jesus in these words are placing, is placing himself on par with God the Father. It is a reminder of everything that's been said before as we've walked through John together. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. That's what Jesus has told us. These words have been on repeat throughout John. John chapter 12, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but in him who sent me. John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. This is precisely Jesus' point back to one of his disciples as we skip down real quick to verses 8 through 11. Look there in your Bibles, John 14, verse 8 through 11. Philip, after hearing about Jesus' promise, that, that, that we're about to unpack in just a moment, responds back to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. If that in a nutshell ain't us, I don't know what is. It doesn't matter how much Jesus has shown us before. Doesn't matter. We're always looking for more. We're all looking for him to show us more in order to believe. We are always placing God on trial in order to receive our faith. We're placing him on trial. We're saying, if you do this, then I'll believe. And then he does that. Wait a second, wait a second. If you do this, then I'll believe. And then he does that. But, but one more thing, and then I'll trust you. And we're constantly inching it up, right? We're constantly ratcheting up the stakes for him to earn our faith. Jesus responds to Philip with this in verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say this? I've been telling you this. The entire time we've been together, I've been walking with you for three years. For Pete's sake, you were on a boat that I stopped all the waves that were crashing against it. You saw dead people rise from the grave. You've seen me heal all manner of disease. You've seen people touch my clothes and be healed. Yeah, Jesus, but if you show us the Father, then I'll believe. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus' response to Philip is exactly the same response that he gave in verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You're looking. When you see me, you see God the Father. He and I are one. Believe. Believe. Philip says, well, we trust God the Father, and we'll trust you as well once you show us. (laughs) Once you show him to us, right? That's Philip's response. Jesus' words are meant to rebuke Philip's doubt by simply appealing to the ministry that Philip has been a part of for the last three years. He's saying, you've been with me. You should know this. We would do well to consider Jesus' words here as well for us in light of the many ways that our heart can grow troubled in this world. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes, Sometimes we feel isolated, but it doesn't mean that we are. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's look at verse 2 and get to this actual promise that Jesus is highlighting in this text. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, these words are the promise. He's saying, believe in God, believe in me. He's saying, yes, I know that I'm preparing to leave, but don't be troubled by my departure. Why? Because I am going to prepare a place for you. And that in that place, there are many rooms. Jesus is talking about heaven. Jesus desires that in the light of his departure, the disciples find their comfort in the eternal life that is to come. Jesus wants them, as they are working through the hardships of life, he wants them to think on the fact that there is something better that our Lord and Savior is preparing for us. What do we do when we talk about heaven, typically? Most of the time when we get interviews of people that say that they died and went to heaven, most of the time it's interviews filled with people that say, yeah, man, I saw a lot of people that I missed there. Friends and family. Had great food. Played wonderful games. Had all sorts of things that we could possibly, uh, all the resources that you could ever want. Streets were paved with gold. You know what's what's very desperately missing from most of those conversations? Seeing God there. Seeing God there. Seeing Christ there. One of the words that's been unfortunately used to rob this text of its meaning is the word mansions. If you got a KJV Bible, it says mansions. And it's nothing wrong with the translation. It comes from the Latin Vulgate, which was fourth century, a fourth century Latin translation of the New Testament. And in the Latin, test, Latin New Testament, it said mansions. And so the KJV brought in mansions. And then later on, if you look at all the contemporary versions, you note that it says rooms, right? I say that, say, I say that it's been a misfortune is because most of the time what we do with the word mansions is that we fix our attention on it. And so now when everybody thinks about heaven, they think about the things that we're getting when we get there. 
So you could talk to everybody, and everybody's fixed on the mansions that we're getting. Missing the, the, the point of this text. This is not the point of this text. The point of this text is that the point of this text is not you will get a mansion in heaven. Heaven without God, I'm quoting um, here an, uh, an old, old theologian, but heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without a groom or a palace without a king. Wherever God is, there is heaven. Thus, wherever God is not, there is hell. The presence of God is the essence of heaven, Randy Alcorn writes. John Milton writes, thy presence makes our paradise where thou art, is heaven. Samuel Rutherford writes, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. To be with God, to know him, to see him is the central draw of heaven. This is what C.S. Lewis says about our desires as humans. He says that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And this is the point. We spend our days longing for a mansion in a place that God is there. The mansion is not the highlight of heaven. God is. The disciples aren't getting excited about the fact that Jesus says, you know, there's some really nice rooms in heaven for you. Like, oh, man, we get some great rooms. That's not what the disciples are excited about. What the disciples are troubled about and what Jesus comforts them with is that I'm going to prepare a place so that where I am, you can be. I'm going, as a matter of fact, he says, my father, in my father's house, what? He says are not simply just rooms, many rooms. What's the purpose of that? There's room for you there. I'm going, you can't come yet, but don't worry, because when I come back, you'll be able to come, and there's plenty of room. So that, not, not so you can have a great room, but that so you can be with me. The Bible doesn't say in the full, in, 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 in the presence of mansions, there's fullness of joy. The Bible doesn't say in the presence of nice clothing and nice cars and nice, and, 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 and nice things. The Bible doesn't say that in the presence of all of my family. All of those things will be, probably be there and it will be fantastic. But you know what it all terminates and leads towards? God. That's why the, that's why the psalmist writes, in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Let your heart rise in the reality of knowing not that you'll have nice things in heaven, but you will literally have the God who creates everything in heaven. And he will be in fellowship with you throughout eternity. And that your, your, your peaks will know no end. 
because every day you will rise to this Savior who is infinite, infinitely to be enjoyed, infinitely to be satisfied, to be satisfied in, rather. So how do we receive the promise? Verse 4, it says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, from now on you do know him and have seen me. We don't know where you're going. How we get there? And Jesus says, you know where I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I'm going back to the Father. You can't get there unless you come through me. Well, what's the way? I'm the way. I'm the way. When Jesus writes to Peter in John chapter 13, and he says that, no, you can't come now, but you can come later. It's interesting because he tells the unbelieving Jews in earlier chapters that, no, you cannot come, and he never says that you can come later. Why? It's because Peter's doing so many great things. Is it because Peter's accomplishing so many fantastic works? No. The reason that Peter can come later to this beautiful place where God is and the unbelieving Jews cannot come is because of their unbelief. Trust in Christ is what will gain you entry into heaven. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Trusting in him, living your life in trust to him is what gives you admittance into heaven. It's not because of their works. It's not because, it's not because they've done so many great things as disciples. It's because they trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Corporal Desmond Doss of, uh, of, 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 uh, of, for whatever reason, I can't remember the Hack Ridge, but it's someplace in World War II, Hacksaw Ridge. Thank you, sir. But Corporal Desmond Doss saved 75 lives in one day, pulled them back to safety while bullets and bombs were raging all around him. And yet, if that was the only thing on his admission ticket at the gates of heaven, he would not get in. That is stunning to me. What's even more stunning, though, is that on the other hand, many of us have saved nobody's life. We've never seen a bum. We've never seen a bullet. Pete's sakes, if I saw one, I would cry like a baby. And, and, and yet, the only, if the only thing on my admission ticket is that I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I will receive entry. This tells us two things about salvation. One, we are far too sinful to earn our way in. If a man that can save 75 lives can't earn his way in, then none of us can earn our way in. There's not a million good acts that you and I can perform that can replace our sin and our treason before God. We need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. And yet, Christ and his righteousness are far too glorious to deny entry to those who trust in him. No matter what their lives were before meeting him, no matter whether they were spectacular or completely and totally unspectacular, Christ and his glory and his righteousness are 
far, far too superior to deny entry to those that have decided to trust him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me, that is our ticket. That is how we get in to be with God. So lastly, verse 12 and 13, or 12 through 14. What are we to do while we await, while we're waiting on this, right? Because, because you and I are here, and Jesus is there, and we'll talk about the second promise, which is the Spirit whom he has given us while we're here. But what are we to do in the meantime as we await the moment where we will be received into the place where God is, into the presence of God? What are we to do in the meantime? Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What are we to do? Quite simply, we are to work under his authority for his good. Now, I'm not talking about working to earn your salvation. I'm talking about working to be on mission, just to live, to show his glory. This is what I mean. He says this. He tells the disciples, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So he says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. But while I am gone, there's still a harvest to be reaped. There's still seed to be cast. You're not earning your salvation. You're being ambassadors of this salvation that you've been given. Are you following? He says, he says not, only, not only will you do, do these works, but you'll do greater works. And, and what does that even mean? Some people have taken it to mean that, that, that I'm going to do even more fantastic things than Jesus did in terms of spectacular or in terms of the spectacle of the thing. Raising from the dead, healing all manner of diseases showing up on a mountain and literally being transfigured so that light is shining so bright that people can't see you, eh, I don't know. You probably won't, probably won't catch up to that. So it has to mean something else. It has to mean something else. There's two clues to it. One is that he says, I'm going to the Father. You will do greater works because I am going to the Father. But it's also where he talks about greater works for himself, where, where in John chapter 5, he says that for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Son raises the dead, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He says that the Son will do greater works than he's already been doing. And we say he's been doing some great works, so what are you talking about? And then he points to it. He says that the Son will give life. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's pointing to the gospel as the greater works. And so, in other words, what you and I have that Jesus actually did not have, believe it or not, was the culmination of his gospel work. When he goes to the Father, he, we 
enter into a new age where the work has been complete. And we go as ambassadors and we go and we share the gospel with men and with women saying, be reconciled, be redeemed, be rescued by God. What makes the work great is not the, the ability that I have to raise someone from the dead or the ability that I have to heal somebody that's sick. What makes the work great is that I am speaking gospel now. I am speaking about a God who has completed a work. And now he is winning people all over the world through all ages to this work. Are you tracking with that? He says, ask anything in my name. Ask anything in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so the question, the last question we have to ask ourselves is, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean that if I just ask Jesus for a car and I ask it in Jesus' name that I'll get it? Does it, does it mean that if I ask Jesus for a $50 million plane and I ask it in his name, I'll get it? What does that mean to ask anything in my name? The first clue is that he says, ask anything in my name, and not just ask anything. The second clue is that he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son when I fulfill it. If you ask anything, but you're asking it, asking it in his name, it means that you're asking it with his authority. It means that you're asking it with his concurrence, with his agreement. In other words, if you say, Jesus, I want a $50 million plane. And Jesus is like, eh, you don't need one. Then if you ask in his name, you might not get it. Because he doesn't think that that's going to bring glory to the Father and to him. Prayers in his name. I'm quoting, quoting an uh, old theologian. Prayers in his name are prayers that are offered, offered in thorough accord with all that his name stands for. His name is not used as a magical incantation and in recognition that the only approach to God, those who pray enjoy, their only way to God is Jesus himself. He says that the things that you're asking for are, the, for, the, are for the purposes that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever Jesus is pointing to his disciples asking for and working towards is intended to bring glory back to the Son. So the best question we can ask for ourselves as we pray in light of the fact that we are awaiting his return, and as we labor in his name, and as we pray in his name, the best question we can ask ourselves is, are we asking for the things that bring God glory? Are we asking for the things that bring us glory? Jesus has returned to, to the Father, but he has promised us that he has not returned because he does not love us, but he has returned precisely because he loves us and that he is preparing a wonderful place for us. And that while we are here, we are to continue to labor in his name. We are to continue to share the gospel. We are to continue to bring, bring men and women to the same place that we are, that we are, which is eager expectation, eager expectation for the life to come. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God.
Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you, and we give you praise and glory and honor. And we ask that you would continue to help us, Lord God. Continue to help us in our, in our struggles, Lord. Continue to help us as we wrestle with the challenges of this life. Continue to help us, Lord, as we, um, as we look towards you. Father, we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would empower us, Lord, for the challenges that we've been given, for the, for the work that you've called us to. We thank you, Lord, that it is not the work that earns our salvation, but it is, but it is your work that has granted us salvation. But, Father, we do pray, Lord, that as we labor, that we would labor, Lord God, in such a way that we would draw men and women, Lord God, that we would, that we would win men and women, Lord God, so that they would come and that they would be eagerly anticipating the same thing that we are eagerly anticipating, the day that we return and be with you forever. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.